You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Uh, ben, we're going to do some some stuff a little bit differently this week. I like that. Because... Shake it up. As is the universe's uh, habit, the news of Anderson Silva and Nick Diaz both failing drug tests at UFC 183 broke last Tuesday. Uh, the day after we record the podcast, naturally, which is pretty much par for the course at this point. Um, and we sit here almost a, a week removed from that, staring down the barrel of a UFC Fight Night 60 card on Saturday night, which hasn't inspired a ton of excitement. Uh, and uh, there's also a World Series of Fighting event, I believe, on Friday. Is that right? Sure. And uh, Bellator event also on Friday. That's how they do. Uh, so uh, we're going to, uh, you know do a little bit of a loosey-goosey structure here where we we spend some time just talking about the Anderson Silva situation because I think that's still the uh the biggest news of the day uh and we're going to we're going to answer a bunch of listener mail questions because as usual we got a got a lot of good ones um we're just going to see how things unfold we're going to kick kick the shoes off put the feet up turn the lights down a little bit well, plug that lava lamp in things are starting to sound a little bit more romantic than i had anticipated put on a record Sit in a beanbag chair and, uh, you know, do the thing where we just look up at those glow in the dark stars you put on your ceiling. So basically, Say like, on our minds. just chilling like maybe our dads in the 70s. Pretty much. Or something. Yeah. Well, Ben, this episode of the Co Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. Ben, the CME universe killed it so far signing up for draftkings.com a couple weeks ago you leading up to ufc 183 but just in case there are any stragglers out there who missed the boat don't worry you have another opportunity this week as benson henderson takes on brandon thatch in kind of an oddball matchup i guess in the main event of ufc fight night 60 which we're going to talk about more later in the show uh look though this DraftKings thing is easy just pick five fighters stay under the salary cap and you could be in the money you score points when your fighters rack up statistics like significant strikes takedowns sweeps knockdowns knockouts submissions you guys know how this sport works you gain bonus points based on which round your fighters end their fights these are the biggest daily fantasy sports contests in mixed martial arts ever so look i'm just concerned that some of you guys are going to get left out uh go to draftkings.com now and sign up to use our promo code ben tell them how to do that well chad you heard to draftkings.com and use promo code CME as in the initials of the co-main event to play daily fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC Fight Night 60. You could win your slice of $1 billion in prizes being awarded this year. Enter CME to play for free now at draftkings.com. draftkings.com that is draftkings.com. You know draftkings.com awarded 3 over $300 million last year, Ben. And as we said two weeks ago, you don't have to spend your, your free play on MMA. You could do any sport you want. Golf. Maybe college basketball. I'm Pro- not sure that golf is available. Professional ice hockey. I'm not sure that that's available. I don't know, though. We, we You'd have to check it out and see, because I know that you are just waiting to gamble a little bit on uh, 
a little bit of ice hockey. You know I have a problem, and I, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> All right, well, let's get started here, Ben. Uh, we're almost a week removed, after, as I said at the top of the show, from uh, news that Anderson Silva failed a, a out-of-competition, random, pre-fight drug test, bankrolled by the UFC. You have to do this thing with your fingers when you say out of competition. We'll, we'll get to that. you got to do the air quotes. We'll get to that. Uh, bankrolled by the UFC, but administered by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Uh, this, to me, was a real dagger in the heart to find this out. Uh, it broke last Tuesday, like we said, and uh, frankly, uh, it was kind of a backbreaker for me, man. I don't know that I am ready to uh, acknowledge that we live in a world where the greatest consensus, greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time uh, had two different hardcore steroids in his bloodstream when he took this pre-fight drug test. Uh, and I guess, and part of that I think is that it's Anderson Silva. And part of it is that if the guy that you regard as the greatest of all time is on steroids, I feel like that suggests that you, the, the rest of the sport may also have a fairly pronounced PEDs problem. What, what was your initial reaction to, uh, to finding this out, Ben? And how are you processing it now? Yeah. You know, you're right that it was a dagger in the heart. This one just hurt a lot more than a lot of the other ones because it just seemed like not. Not Anderson, you know, and, and not only, you know, you're right that it made you wonder, okay, if Anderson Silva can be on steroids, then what the hell, man? Where does it stop? Who could you absolutely say is clean? And I think that that becomes a tougher and tougher question I've seen people asking is, who do you know? Who do you feel like you could 100% say is clean? But also the thing with Anderson Silva is that, um, you know, he, you have to wonder about the rest of his career, right? That, he hasn't been through a whole lot of testing like this before. I mean, he can talk about all the, the drug tests he's passed during his career, but that's mostly fight night testing, you know, just because that's, you know, the way the sport has been for so long. This is a fairly new development, this out of competition. I'm doing the thing with my fingers. You can't see it. Uh, testing and he fails, you know, and so then it makes you wonder like, well, what, what would we know about him if they had been doing that testing for his entire career? Like you just don't know what to make of his whole legacy and i think that that's a really troubling thing um and it just makes you feel like you you have to choose between either saying fuck it i give up i'm i either i don't care who's on what or i'm gonna just assume everybody is on it like it, it forces you to kind of make a decision about how you feel about drugs and the current state of the the ped culture and mma altogether. it's not just like one one dude on the undercard testing positive it, it feels like it's kind of a referendum on the entire sport right now yeah and for me that's a tough one because a sport where everybody is on performance enhancing drugs is not a sport that i want to invest a tremendous amount of time watching and or covering and or being a uh uh you know dyed in the wool supporter of um i'm not one of these guys that wants to advocate that we turn the sport into a libertarian hellscape where everybody's just allowed to take whatever they want. Um, I think that that's, that's the worst case scenario. Um, and I guess for Anderson Silva, maybe the, the great hope is that this is a 40 year old man who's coming back from a career threatening injury, uh, maybe trying to hurry back from that, maybe, uh, you know, trying to embark on this desperate, uh, attempt to reclaim his the the former glory that he knew as a younger person which let's let's face it was amazing and so like uh i, I guess that's the best case scenario and like you know 
kind of a story, a story that to me sounds at least believable, though you're right. Uh, for the rest of his career, he had mostly passed fight night testing and hadn't necessarily faced a lot of this out of Kent competition testing. And I think it came out today that, that, uh, he passed. Uh, his in competition yeah. test just fine, right? Well, so, no, I, I don't know if that was that he had passed the in competition test, but there was a a follow up uh test a couple weeks after this one that was in early January. I think that they they tested his blood uh for HGH a couple weeks later, and he came up clean. Uh, and I mean, I think that we've seen this before, right? Where guys who get popped uh a month out from the fight, I, I think was basically what we saw with uh, Ali Bagatinov, right? That, that he got caught. Uh, when they tested him around a month out from his fight and the test that they did when he was actually at the event came up clean. And that's the thing that really forces you to look back on the just history of the sport itself and wonder how many different people would have gotten caught if we'd been doing this testing, this kind of testing for a lot longer. I mean, I think one of the things Anderson Silva has going for him that's going to help him is when you look at his career and the way he beat people, it didn't seem like it was just him overpowering people or being super fast and super strong that it seemed like he was um outskilling people which he can make a better argument that way it's like if george st pierre pops positive everybody's gonna go okay look that was that's the basis for his entire career uh he wouldn't be hitting those blast doubles on guys if he wasn't on steroids he wouldn't be you know launching these superman punches that are too fast for people if he wasn't on steroids but with anderson silva i think you can at least make that argument just like you can make the argument hey I broke my damn leg and I tried to come back to fighting a year later at 39 years old and I wanted a little help and it was wrong, but I did it. I mean, you can make that explanation and I think people aren't going to totally forgive you, but they'll be a little sympathetic. But the problem is you got to make that explanation right away. You, you can't come out and say, I, no way. I absolutely didn't do this. This is, this is totally wrong. I'm wrongly accused and I'm going to clear my name. And then in two months decide to say, okay, you know what? I was lying. I did do it. And here's why. Then people are going to be a lot less sympathetic. Yeah. And I think he's already squandered that opportunity by coming out and sort of uh, vehemently declaring his innocence immediately after this test came out because, you know, this isn't some fly by night operation that, that got no. him here. This is a, a lab accredited by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, and the Nevada State Athletic Commission is obviously the, the most powerful, most influential commission in the country. So, you know, it's, uh, there's not a lot of wiggle room as far as I'm concerned in, in, you know, claiming that this was a false positive unless something, unless he can make a Ryan Braun style argument about chain of, of custody, which, you know, for Ryan Braun, uh, in retrospect, no one's buying anyway. It just seemed like an argument of convenience for him. Or you wonder, like, remember when, you know, Kung Lee is the guy who actually successfully fought a drug test, really, like, and the UFC helped him out by screwing up uh, with who they gave it to and, you know, the Hong Kong Functional Medical Testing Center, which then tests for a substance that they don't have the chemicals to properly test for and then throws out his blood sample after it's over. Like, they do everything possible to make that uh, drug test failure a very appealable one but even now i wonder uh how many of how many people came out of that one which would be the ideal scenario for fighting a drug test thinking like kung lee has been completely exonerated right like yeah. I, th I think there's still a lot of people are going to feel like you got off on a technicality kung lee or like you might have been doping but the ufc didn't catch you right. uh kind of thing and i you know best case scenario for anderson silva even if he manages to pull that off which as you said unlikely in this scenario um, I don't know that that makes the problem go away. Right. Well, we've been burned so many times that, you know, now if anybody tests positive or their name is, is connected to PEDs in any way, I think 
we're all sort of justified in assuming the worst just because that that's you know where we're at in this sport in 2015 let's let's answer this question from uh, Sam Fajance who writes did Anderson Silva win a fight but lose a legacy uh is this MMA's most egregious what is this word pyrrhic victory pyrrhic victory all for right. when like you win a, a a battle but the price that you pay to win it uh, makes it so that it's almost a defeat. I can honestly say I've never seen that word what? before. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah. That is actually a famous, like, historical term. Like, well, you know, see, you history nerds know these words. I'd, that's a really well-known one. I don't, I don't know you're, that you're, you're an ignorant man, Jed. I guess so. Uh, well, let's talk about Anderson Silva's legacy. He certainly has a lot of it to lose, right, since he is uh, regarded as the greatest of all time. Um, does he lose that? I don't, I'm not sure that, that he does just because I think that they're, you know, we're dealing with a fan base that, uh, at least portions of it, I think are apathetic on this issue. And, uh, we don't necessarily have results that call his entire career into question at this point. Um, I, unless I think you really are predisposed to do that. Um, so I'm not sure how this tarnishes his legacy. I mean, it's, it's bad for sure. It would have been better for him not to test positive for steroids, but like, are we taking Anderson Silva off the greatest of all time list and narrowing the discussion to Fedor and, and George St. Pierre? You know, I think it's too soon to say exactly how we're going to remember this one. I think we're, we're really close to it now. The hurt is still pretty fresh for all of us. I think that this one does sting a lot more than, uh, past drug test failures uh, just because you feel like, you know, he was a hero to a lot of people and he seemed like in difficult times for MMA, Anderson Silva seemed like the guy that you would hold up and tell your friends who weren't really fight fans like, okay, you should come over though tonight and see this guy fight. This guy is an artist, man. This guy really makes the sport, like all the things we like to say about, you know, the 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 beauty in the violence of MMA. Anderson Silva was the guy who delivered that most consistently. And so, to have you know him attached to a a, a steroid failure uh, hurt so much more, but I think that you know one of the things I found myself wondering about was uh, I was looking for like the link to put into the trading shots uh, column that Danny and I did yesterday, kind of talking about this, and I came across uh, a lot of Vanderlei Silva stuff from when he ran away from the drug test in Nevada, uh, for which he received a lifetime goddamn ban. Uh, which I think he still intends to challenge. Uh, Dana White saying that, you know, as far as Vanderlei Silva in the Hall of Fame, he's been Pete Rosed. Now, how can you take that stance on Vanderlei, right? He runs away from a drug test, uh, and boom, you're done here. You're done fighting. You're, you will just kind of scratch your name off the record books kind of thing. Uh, and Anderson Silva, who, like, let's face it, Whatever was in Vanderlei's system could not have been much worse than like steroids, right? I mean, that's, that's the apex drug we're looking for pretty much in these drug tests. So I don't know why you get such a different treatment for failing the test as opposed to running it away. And yet you can't imagine the UFC Pete Rosing Anderson Silva here, right? They're already standing behind him a lot more than anybody else wanted to keep him on the Ultimate Fighter coaching staff until the Nevada State Athletic Mission, uh, as we learned today, told them, nope, uh, got to take him off. So I, I think that it's going to be really difficult to say for a little while who's going to do what with regards to how we remember Anderson Silva. Maybe this thing will just kind of like in a couple of years, we'll all look back on it and be like, well, he was old and he broke his leg. Give him a pass. Or maybe the just the the feeling of betrayal that a lot of people, I'm sure, are still dealing with now 
will last for a while. Because I think you see a lot more anger from fans of this one, not only just because it's Anderson Silva, but because of the current climate. It feels kind of like the last straw, doesn't it? It does, yeah. uh, And I think that part of the problem, like you said, is that uh, we seem to have a sliding scale and like we don't apply the same uh, punishments, the same, you know, uh, post-drug test pressure. We don't apply that uniformly. It seems like the UFC likes to take it on a on a case by case and indeed person by person basis uh, and kind of meet out, you know, whatever form of justice or retribution it feels is necessary, which, uh, you know, I think plays into a much larger issue. And this Anderson Silva drug test, I think, also plays into a much larger issue in the sport. And that is, you know, how what percentage of, of fighters are on PEDs, why are they on PEDs? And like, is there anything we can do about it? To me, that's like the, uh, that's the discussion that comes out of this, uh, uh, situation sort of because this does feel like a tipping point. It does feel really, uh, monumental that this guy, the greatest of all time would, would be on steroids. And I think that, you know, picking and choosing who you demonize and who you don't brings up this issue of enforcement, which, uh, in our sport isn't, adequate. And I think that that's one of the things that probably, uh, you know, influences guys to get on performance enhancing drugs in the first place is because they, number one, don't think they're going to get caught. And number two, like they don't fear the retribution or, or the, you know, the punishment. They think that, that it's, that's, you know, that they'll get off easy for lack of a better word. I think it's way more that they don't think they'll get caught. Cause I, I do think that the, the punishment, I mean, there's, the punishment has two aspects, right? The punishment has the just career and immediate financial impacts. I mean, they're both, especially for a guy like Anderson Silva, they're both essentially financial punishments, right? You'll get suspended for a year and you'll get fined like 30% of your purse or something. But, you know, it's not like Anderson Silva was looking to fight four times this year, uh, to work toward a title or anything. So the year suspension isn't that great. The, you know, he gets to keep most of the money he made, uh, if they only find him 30%. So, the financial stuff on a guy who is already rich is not really that uh that considerable it's the the damage it, for him is going to be to his reputation and how we remember him and that's going to be serious damage and the kind of thing that he doesn't really have control over how it goes from here on out but i think it is that people feel like the chances of getting caught if you do it well and you have the, you know the right people telling you how to do this have been really, really low. It's yeah. only when we start doing this, you know, again, I'm going to do the air quotes out of competition testing where we're showing up unannounced at a guy's gym a month out from the fight saying pee in this cup. That's only when we're starting to catch people. And as my man Stephen Morocco uh, crunched the data on it last week on MMA Junkie, it's catching people a lot, like a third of the time that we do these tests. It seems like you get somebody. So, uh, I mean, that's the only thing clearly that's really going to make an impact on these guys. It's not that everybody thinks, well, hey, I'll just take the slap on the wrist if I get caught with steroids, no big deal. It's that they think, I'm not going to get caught. Probably because they know a whole lot of other people who are and have been doing them for a long time and have never been caught. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think we can overlook the extent to which a lot of these people feel like their hand is forced a little bit by the sport. And I don't want to make excuses for guys that are on PEDs, obviously. Uh, but I also don't think that a tremendous amount of people are, are using performance enhancing drugs because they're flat out bad people. Uh, you know, even though I think we have a tendency to, to, to think about it that way sometimes, but like, I always come back to the idea that we're dealing with a sport where if you don't show up to fight, 
you don't get paid. Right. And we're dealing with a sport that's really brutal. And there are obviously a lot of training in- injuries, as we found out in the last c- couple of years. Uh, so if you don't show up to fight, you don't get paid. If you do show up to fight, you're still, you know, in large portion dealing with a situation where 50% of the money that you could get paid depends on whether you win or lose. And I think, you know, anytime you have a situation where people are competing and money is on the line, people are going to try to get an advantage and try to cheat. And I think when you have a situation where, you know, if you're a guy who makes 20 and 20 to fight, it's an enormous difference to get paid $20,000 if you show up and lose than it is to show up and win and get paid $40,000. And I think when you get guys in that situation, uh, they're going to look for any advantage they can have, not only to stay healthy so they can get there and get get paid, but also so they think that they have a, a, the best chance to win, especially since I think you hear from a lot of these guys that get caught, they have sort of convinced themselves that everyone else is also doing it. Well, you know, I think that that's the issue uh, when you talk about people's hands being forced in this. And again, that that's not an excuse for anybody, but I do think that 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 is the big problem with it because I think you'll see whenever something like this happens that some people are going to make the argument like, oh, it doesn't really matter, whatever. Everybody's going to try to get as many advantages as they can. Um, you know, they should either just legalize uh, steroids for fighters uh, so that they can regulate it or something, um, which is a stupid argument because then what do you do when somebody breaks the regulation? Like you're always going to have to have some rule. So you're just kind of changing the moving the goalposts. Um, so it doesn't really solve the problem, but also people are saying like, oh, they're all going to do it anyway. And the problem is that attitude of everybody's doing it. Everybody else is doing it. It makes people feel like if you want to be a professional fighter, then this stuff isn't really optional. Um, unless you are comfortable, like, unless you think you're so good that you can start every fight with a disadvantage. And most people don't feel that way. And I've heard that from so many fighters. And that's the thing that I think, um, really tells you why this is an important issue and why we should care about it is because you'll, I've talked to so many fighters who will say like, um, you know, and I talked to Brian Stan about this at length. Uh, and it's a, Brian Stan is very passionate about this issue. Whenever anybody tests positive is guaranteed that I'll get a text from Brian Stan wanting to talk because he just, you know, he really wants to see that, that aspect of the sport cleaned up. And he said that one of the big reasons that he retired was just feeling like, if I'm going to be competitive in this, uh, then I probably need to do something like this just to be able to get on the same playing field that a lot of these other guys are. And I'm not, I don't want to do it. Not only not want to do it for his own health, but that if he gets caught doing something like that, all these other outside business opportunities that he has, um, which he's made great use of, they might go away. You know, look at how Chael Sonnen got punished, at least initially losing his TV commentating gig and just the way everybody looks at you differently. Um, you know, you're, you, you risk a lot in your personal life outside of fighting by doing this stuff. But at the same time, if guys feel like this is a condition of having this career, that's awful. You know, like then I wouldn't blame anybody. It's like one more of many good reasons not to become a professional fighter if you feel like you have to do steroids just to do it at all. Right. And like if we start talking about, you know, ways to try to clean up the sport, I think one of the real institutionalized problems is that all of the incentives from like a macro point of view from like a state athletic commission point of view and from a promoter point of view and you know from a fighter point of view too like all of the financial incentives uh have to do with making sure that the show goes on right uh maybe we can talk about that in a minute and i think from a fighter point of view like there are more financial incentives that encourage you to use performance enhancing drugs and then maybe there are that encourage you to fight clean and i think if you if you want to try to talk about solutions to this problem if indeed any exist i think you have to make being a clean fighter pay better 
than being a fighter on performance enhancing drugs. I don't know if you saw the Pat Militich's tweet over the weekend, which is, you know, I don't know if it's a perfect solution, but I think it's kind of an interesting idea to offer, you know, financial bonuses, not necessarily based on performance uh, from fight to fight, but like offer financial bonuses for people that can pass their drug tests and, you know, maybe compete clean. And, and, uh, is that so depressing though? To think that we're we're paying you just to not do the stuff you're not supposed to do. It is we're paying a, you to not break the rules. It is a little bit depressing, but it also makes sense because, like, if you t- want to talk about the two languages that every single fighter speaks in, it's money and time, right? Like, that's all you have as an athlete. So, like, when it comes to both uh, handing out penalties for testing positive for steroids, I think you need to do it through money and time. And I think. Uh, you know, when it comes to like trying to encourage people not to take steroids, I think you need to do it through, through money. So I agree with you. It is kind of like a depressing statement, but I also feel like that could be one of the, the ways to, you know, that could be one of the paths to a cleaner sport is to like, you know, we've got this Reebok money coming in. Like, you know, maybe if you test positive for drugs, you don't get any of your Reebok money or maybe like, well, if- they, haven't they already done that with the, I mean, at least to some extent where if you want a bonus, they wouldn't give you your bonus until your drug test came back clean. Right. But those bonus are still performance based, which right. I think harkens back to a thing I was saying earlier, which is like there's more reasons in this sport to take performance enhancing drugs than there are not to. And I think one of the real subtle ones is that in a lot of cases you can double your money or you know even do better than that if you are one of the people that do the most physically impressive feat in the cage. Like I don't know, man. Like if I worked at a job where fifty percent of my money had to do with whether I won or lost, and I could make fifty thousand dollars extra if I was the best person at doing that thing on that day, I think that I would consider performance enhancing drugs, and I think a lot of us would, especially yeah. if we thought we wouldn't get caught. Yeah, and that's the thing is to make a greater chances you'll get caught. Before we move on, uh, I will read to you uh, a quote from Plutarch in my best Dan Carlin hardcore history voice. The army separated, and it is said, King Pyrrhus replied to one that gave him joy of his victory that one more such victory would utterly undo him, for he had lost a great part of the forces he brought with him, and almost all his particular friends and principal commanders. There were no others there to make recruits, and he found the Confederates in Italy backward. On the other hand, as from a fountain continually flowing out of the city, the Roman camp was quickly and plentifully filled up with fresh men, not at all abating in courage for the loss they sustained, but even from their very anger, gaining new force and resolution to go on with the war. Pyrrhic victory. Oh, so that's that was all about that? Yeah, Pyrrhic victory. Wow. You learned something here today, Chad Dunnis, you ignorant man. You are the worst at this. All right. Um, here's one that's come up a lot. And this, we'll read this question. Uh, uh, we got a couple of these. Let's read this one uh, from Andrew Buckingham, uh, who writes... Member of the royal family, I believe, right? Member of the royal family, Andrew Buckingham, or at least uh, the architect of a palace. Of the Buckingham Palace? Yeah. Uh, the guy, the people who live there are the Buckinghams, right? Sure. Sure they are. <laughs> you're, you're killing it in just historical knowledge today. Uh, from Andrew Buckingham, am I the only one that believes Dana White and the NSAC knew about the dirty test before fight night? I mean, it's called pre-fight drug test. If they canceled the fight, main event, pay-per-view buy numbers would have been fugly, and people that paid to go live would have been pissed. So my question is, do you believe they swept this under the rug until after the fight? This has been a popular conspiracy theory going around. It is, and like I said, all of the financial... uh you know, stakes in this sport have to do with making sure that the show goes on. However, this is a conspiratorial bridge too far, as far as I'm concerned, especially since we don't really have any 
you know, concrete evidence to even suggest that that could be the case. Uh, I feel a lot more comfortable just thinking that this is incompetence on the part of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which I think when you take this situation and the John Jones situation from a month or two ago together, uh, you have a much easier time making the case for incompetence than you do these people trying to cover anything up. And I think, hey, man, we should make the point. This shit is hard. It's not easy to do this drug testing stuff. Like, it's expensive. It takes time. You need to have, like, people that know what they're doing running the program. And there's a lot of ways that you can screw it up, as I believe the Nevada State Athletic Commission just found out another one of them. Yeah, that is true. And, I mean, it is like. We do seem to love this uh, narrative that the Nevada State Athletic Commission is incompetent, and it's tough to make the argument that they are both uh, incompetent and scheming conspiracy uh, colluders, basically, that, you know, they can't really be both. It's – to me, though, I mean, I do wonder – because I think it's a good point that, hey, why are we doing these pre-fight drug tests if we're not going to get the test results back until afterwards? And then I wonder, like – Okay, who really wants to see that world where the day, you know, three days before the fight, we learn, oh, wait a minute, one of the drug tests came back, fights off. I mean, I wonder, though, if that's what we need. Like, because I feel like we would all be super pissed at a bunch of different people uh, if that happened. I feel like as much as we might like to act like we want to see these results before the fight, I don't know if we do. I think we'd just be, we'd feel the same way we feel when somebody gets injured or has a terrible weight cut or something and can't fight, where we just feel like we've been cheated out of something. But I also wonder, like... Is this what everybody needs? Both the the motivation the UFC needs uh, because the you know they won't make their money. The motivation the the commission needs because they won't make their money. Uh, and the motivation fans need because they don't get to see the fights. If we start getting these test results back beforehand, so that instead of just depressing us after the fact, that they actually start preventing some of these fights from happening. Yeah, I think you need to do something to really turn up the heat on everyone involved if you're serious about cleaning up the sport. Uh, in fact, over on Bleacher Report right now, I have a, 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 an article that I published today, the f- a five-point program to try to get performance-enhancing drugs out of the UFC. And, and I think, you know, what it mostly boils down to is that people have to feel like they've suffered terrible consequences. Yes. Uh, and that's a lot of it. Um, and, you know, that's a bummer for fans, man. But, like, the truth is... Like, if you care about cleaning up this sport and you are a fan of it, you're probably going to have to make some sacrifices, whether that means you get a fight that you were wanting to see, like, snatched out from under you at the last minute, or whether it means that you just kind of settle for a sport which may, in fact, be less exciting uh, if not everybody is juiced to the gills on performance-enhancing drugs. But, like, if you're serious about wanting to see a cleaned-up sport as a fan, I think, you know, some of it starts at home. And, uh, you know, if you're not serious about cleaning up the sport then i don't know if we deserve to have it in the first place frankly yeah and that's a good point and i would also think that if you're the nevada state athletic commission uh it would be just in your best interest to to try to do something to make sure you stop getting accused of doing stuff like this i mean even if you're completely innocent it's not a great look for you and it does look just terribly convenient if you you do you do a test the almost a month out before the fight and then you get the results back right afterwards, like the Tuesday after uh, the fight happens. That's when we hear about it. That does make people give you the old side eye. All right, let's do at least one more question before we bring Sir Nigel Longstock in here to play Master Tweet Theater. This one from Stu Pavola. He writes, Antonio Silva, Hoist Gracie, 
Vitor Belfort, Tiago Silva, Cyborg, Fajau, Vanderlei Silva, basically, and now Anderson Silva's name, add Anderson Silva's name to the list of Brazilian MMA stars caught using PEDs. I'm aware fighters from other countries have also been caught with needles in their asses, but do you think the problem is more widespread amongst Brazilian fighters? Um, I don't know that we fully want to quite go that far, although I think it does uh deserve to be mentioned that like several members of the black house fight team have tested positive for the same steroid isn't that right uh i i heard that i don't know if that's totally true um but as far as the the problem being more widespread among brazilian fighters i'll go that far i think so i think you that think so what do you think do you think it's cultural do i think, think it's cult i think that there's a different cultural attitude among brazilian fighters um, toward performance enhancing drugs. And I've, I've seen it even in jujitsu circles that they just have a, the Brazilians have just kind of a different attitude about steroids that it just, it seems less like a dirty, cheating, secretive backroom thing that you're doing and more like an option. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, that's not necessarily a, a thing about the entire Brazilian culture, but about the Brazilian fight culture, I think that, and you can see that pop up in, all kinds of various areas, not just, you know, but like where one group of people starts to normalize it, it becomes something that you see a lot and it's not necessarily such a taboo thing anymore. And so it just becomes a little more popular. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in especially the, uh, jujitsu gym, one of the jujitsu gyms where I first started out in San Diego, where there were a lot of Brazilians, like, uh, they would talk a little bit more openly about steroids and about times that they've tried steroids and cycles they'd gone through and just did not have the same attitude about it. And I think on MMA fighting, uh, Guillermo Cruz recently had a, had a piece about, uh, the local promoters in Brazil kind of trying to crack down on it. And then them even saying like people just kind of view it differently here and it's a much bigger problem. So I, I do think that there's a little something to that. Uh, then again, how do we know that, uh, they're doing more steroids and, not just getting caught more often. Right. And I will say also, like, if you are a super poor Brazilian fighter, much like if you are a baseball player from the Dominican Republic running around using a milk carton as a, as a glove, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit more of my heart, so to speak, if I find out that you are on steroids. Obviously that this doesn't apply to millionaire Anderson Silva, but like, if there's a kid fighting to get himself out of the slums of Brazil, uh, and he's taking steroids, I'm going to say I understand that. A little bit more than I would say a NCAA All American National Champion wrestler or something like that. Yeah, just my just my two cents. Um, here's one that I thought that uh, that we should read before we move on. Uh, you kind of touched on it briefly, but from Kevin S. Nearly every time a fighter talks about the use of steroids in MMA, they claim that 90% or more of fighters use steroids, but he or she is the one of the select few that don't. Seems like bullshit. Discuss. Yeah, those are high numbers. I remember when Christoph Shasinski, maybe right before he retired, talked about how 85 or 90 percent of people were on steroids. Uh, Mark Bocek, when he retired, also said a very high number of MMA fighters were on steroids. That seems like a tremendously high number to me, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were uh, the 30 percent that these uh, out of competition testing have caught on a very small sample size basis so far. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 50 uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit over 50. Uh, I'm not sure that 90% of fighters could afford to be on steroids. <laughs> right. Uh, so, well, so I mean, I, I guess it depends. So like, what do you include? Do you just mean the, on the UFC roster? Do right. you mean fighters in general? Uh, and I, you know, I, I think like, uh, we, we are justified, I think, in kind of having a suspicion that maybe 90% of fighters are on steroids. And I would say as an addendum to that, if you are a clean fighter right now at this moment in this sport, 
man, it is time to turn up the heat on these people that are not like whatever you can do, like sign up for the uh, volunteer anti-doping agency testing and basically say anybody who doesn't is a cheater. Like if you are one of the people who is doing this for real and doing it clean, uh, you got to try to do something. But then you look at a guy like John Fish, right, who he used to be kind of outspoken about uh, steroids and talking and come out really strongly against them. And then. Lo and behold, we find out uh, last week that he also uh, failed a drug test before his World Series of Fighting fight. So uh, maybe some of those guys are thinking, I don't know if I come out super hard on it now and I find later on in my career that I want to use it, it's going to look bad. I mean, but I mean, right now, who do you know who's super outspoken to the point where either they are just the most uh, sociopathic cheater out there or they absolutely have to be clean? I'd say Michael Bisping. Right. And Tim Kennedy, right? Those Tim, are your two Tim guys. Kennedy. Um, and you know, before I retired, Brian Stan. And like, those are the guys I would say right now that I'm absolutely sure are clean. But then even, you know, that's the, the really hard thing about seeing guys like Anderson Silva and even John Fitch pop up is it just makes you question absolutely everything. It's bad for, for, it's really bad for the guys who are clean because we just are so, become so cynical and so suspicious of everybody that it's just like everybody gets tarred with the same brush. Yeah. We're going to end up talking more about this, I think, unfortunately. Uh, as for right now, though, Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play a little bit of Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I be that pretty Mother Hubbard. What? Harlem's what I'm repping. You know, Chad, I don't know. How do we keep inviting this guy over here to do this shit? The fans, unfortunately, love him. Well, I guess that'll save him for now. Uh, I guess you've come in here with a bunch of tweets around some kind of hastily thrown together theme that you will abandon very quickly. Tell me I'm right. Sir, you are partially right, but I was just remarking to Chad about how unified the theme is this week. Oh, really? It's delightful. So as many as three tweets might adhere to the theme is what you're saying. Sir, I got theme like a high school English paper. (laughs) Harlem, also not officially repping Harlem. I should make that clear. Yeah, you really should. Although... I think people might have figured it out. Something I do informally. <clears throat> the theme is the company you keep. Okay. All right. I kind of like this one, Chad. This, yeah. this could go places. It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> Let's begin. Red leather. Yellow leather. <laughs> Tweet the first. At Chrissy Blair. What are you up to tonight? <laughs> okay. All right. You're just going to start us off with that one, huh? How could I not, sir? I read Reddit MMA. I know what's going on. That's Lorenzo Fertitta. That's the chairman up in here, Chad. Yeah. You know, just seeing what his what his employees are up to like any good boss would. Yeah, so they don't get in trouble? Right, yeah. Like, maybe uh, she needs her to pick... Maybe she needs him to pick her up from the bus station. Right. Well, and especially impressionable young employees like UFC Octagon Girl Chrissy Blair. Lorenzo should keep an eye on him, right? Or maybe he heard she likes him. (laughs) 
Well, thank you for suggesting that possibility. Somebody had to, I guess. It D- is Lorenzo Fertitta, by the way. We're not talking about Rich Franklin here. By the way, is that tweet still up on the internet? Or is no, sir. It has been deleted, but screen cap after screen cap was sent to me by loyal listeners. Well, good. Everyone's keeping an eye out. Harlem, I assume. <laughs> Just a bunch of people who live there. <clears throat> tweet the second. Surround yourself with lions and you will become a lion. Surround yourself with lambs and you will become a lamb. Hmm. Wow. I don't know if that's how it works, actually, in the animal kingdom. But I'm going to say John Jones. He's always talking about lions and shit, right? That's what I was going to say because of the lion connection. Yeah. Now I have to think of another lion-associated fighter. Uh... Vidor Belfort. See, that would have been my my B choice if I had to. Both fine guesses, both connected to Christian dog whistles, and both wrong. Ah. It's Rich Franklin. Oh, See, Rich Franklin has no line connection whatsoever, does he? Except that he also loves the Christian dog whistles, right? So there you go. Oh. And inspirational sayings of all kinds. That's right. That's true. Thank God it's Friday, Rich Franklin says on Tuesday, just to try it out. Maybe coming back from his vacation, talking about how he needs a vacation from his vacation. Oh, man, we've all felt it, but he puts it in words. <laughs> Maybe on a poster. Tweet the third. Don't rule out a potential contact high that Silva could have gotten from fighting me. I had more juice than Jamba. That's the Oregon gangster, Shale Sonnen, making light of both his repeated use of performance-enhancing drugs and, you know, this kind of heartbreaking one for Anderson Silva. Because it's all fun and games, Chad. Well, he's made quite a cottage industry for himself here about being the go-to guy on steroids. Yeah. Both literally and just in case you want to know anything about being on steroids. Just yucking it up about using performance-enhancing drugs to get super strong before you go in there and bash another dude's head in. Well, I mean, it would be impossible not to run afoul of the WADA code. I don't know if you've... Nobody even knows what it is. That's what I've heard. They don't want you to use steroids ever. (laughs) (laughs) So just admit that I'm right. It's Chael Sonnen. You are correct. It is Chael Sonnen just reminding us all that he did steroids too. (laughs) In case you're wondering where to get them. Tweet the fourth. Walking Dead, super sad, poignant moments, kill a few zombies, go to break every two minutes and repeat every single episode. Oh, plus flashbacks. Okay. Um, you know who I think, based on my just like casual understanding of the things they talk about on Twitter, is a Walking Dead fan? Uh, Matt Mitrione. Oh, wait, did Matt Mitrione get banned from, from, from Master Tweet Theater? I don't remember. No. No, only War banned. Machine and that ah oh, that racist heavyweight he's from Indiana. Sean I forgot McCorkle? his name. Sean McCorkle. Sean yes, McCorkle. he's banned okay, and a I, racist. Then I stick with Matt Mitrione. Uh, let's see here. Well, I know CM Punk tweets a lot about The Walking Dead. That sounds a little bit too critical for him on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to go Mike Bisping here because he tweets a lot about stuff that he watches on the television or the telly. The telly? Yeah, okay. Both fine guesses, only one correct. It is Michael Bisping, yes! and the television is the company he keeps. <laughs> All right, yes. do the goddamn voice. <clears throat> Walking Dead, super sad, poignant moments, kill a few zombies, go to break every two minutes and repeat every single episode, oh, plus flashbacks. You know how I should have known that it was an English person? Poignant. Use of the word mm, poignant. Yeah. In, in retrospect, that should have been a giveaway. Yep. I really sleuthed that out, though. 
I don't want to let this moment pass by without pointing out how Johnny on the spot I was there with my not only Twitter knowledge, but my understanding that Sir Nigel would want to read a tweet from Michael Bisping. Yeah. Good job by me there. Yeah. Way to bring the whole thing to a halt to pat yourself on the back. It's true that Chad was a real Nancy Drew there. <laughs> he was a Nancy, all right. Parents gone, just learning to be a woman. <laughs> <laughs> tweet the fifth. Hanging with the neighborhood kids. Video of the tweeter sliding down a hill on a garbage can lid while children laugh at him. Wait, did you just describe a video to us? As I did. Well, it's a vine. Okay. All right. So some... Also, the vine begins with him saying, oh, shit, in front of a bunch of kids. Okay, now, see, this seems like something Matt Mitrione would do. It does. You know what, though? Also seems like something the poet Philip Brony would do. That's what I'm going to say. All right, I guess I'm going to go Matt Mitrione here. Both fine guesses, both meatheads, and both wrong. It is Chris Lieben. Well, that seems like just a good time for all the neighborhood kids. Hanging out with them. Bad idea for Chris Lieben to hang out with kids in his neighborhood. I think they will influence him. <laughs> is that it? That's it. That's that all was you've got? the fifth, yes. Oh, Chad Christ. wins, I believe, commandingly. What? I got, I got like, Lorenzo Fertitta and Jill Sonnen. but you did not get Mike Bisping. Oh, that's how you win this bullshit now. You Fine. last. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. That's it for Master Tree Theater. What do you got going on? Well, sir, it's funny you should ask. I've just finished shooting an exciting project about a hockey player who must learn to doubles figure skate by dying violently over and over again. I see. And what's it called? It's called The Cutting Edge of Tomorrow. And what role do you play? I play a heckler at the Olympics. <laughs> well, that was Master Tree Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. All right, Ben, well, let's start here with a listener mail question from Farron Hankinson. He writes, well, guys, it's just one of those freak Cirque du Soleil type fights this weekend, a fight that pits a former lightweight champ against an up-and-comer at 170 that only the hardcores really know about. Bjorn Rebney must be behind this. Could you guys speculate as to why Ben Henderson took this strange matchup while turning down George Masvidal in his division while where he's returning to allegedly after the fight. Thanks, Mr. Dundas and Mr. Folks. First of all, thank you for for referring to us as the misters. It's polite. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I think Ben Henderson is having a hard time dealing with these these back to back losses. I think you're he right. He wants to get this taste out of his mouth. It's not a dude who is uh, used to um, enduring this particular kind of adversity. I think that's a big part of it. I also think that if you're wondering, you know, hey, why do this fight at 170? Um, why jump in there right away instead of trying to look for a fight against somebody like George Masvidal uh, back down at lightweight? I think you have to take into account that, for one thing, Benson Henderson's a, a pretty big lightweight. So for him to do the old Donald Cerrone, hey, you got an open spot, I'll jump in there and take it thing – uh, requires a little more planning because he's got to make sure that he can make the weight. Whereas if you're going to jump in for a fight at welterweight, you know, you don't have to worry about making a huge weight cut or anything that, so you can do it on a little shorter notice for him. But I do think you're also right that like after, especially after losing that close decision against Donald Cerrone, you could see how fired up he was that he just kind of wanted to say, 
fuck it, where's the next one I can take? Let me get in there again. Um, so I'm not sitting around here stewing about it. And, you know, I can definitely understand that. I also, though, you gotta wonder, you know, for one thing, that doesn't always lead you to the best decision making, just being like worked up and, uh, wanna go do something instead of thinking about something. But also, if you go in there and you lose this fight, which is totally possible, I mean, Brandon Thatch is a tough dude and it's at welterweight, then now you're looking at three straight losses. I mean, that's that's trouble time in the UFC. It is. Do we extend Ben Henderson any sort of uh, 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 benefit of the doubt because this one's at 170? Like, yes, this, sure. This, sure. this doesn't make him... Like well, uh, yeah, I'm this. I'm not sure that we had like lost faith in the guy, but I think that like if he loses a fight at 170 and he's able to go back down to 155, I'm not gonna say it means nothing, but it also is is might not be that big of a deal. Uh, let's talk about the flip side though. If Ben Henderson wins this over, you know, as Farron Hangison points out, Brandon Thatch, a guy who only the hardcore fight fans really know who he is, but he's a guy who has a certain amount of hype behind him at this point in really hardcore fight circles. Uh, he's won, you know, six or seven fights in a row by first round stoppage. Uh, he's been really impressive in his two previous UFC fights. Uh, I feel like changing weight glasses is a thing that happens all the time, but very seldom is the cure all that people want it to be. But if, if Benson Henderson wins this, can he, could he make a future for himself at 170 or is it just the best thing for him to do to immediately go back to lightweight to kind of win, lose or draw? You know, I don't know. He, he's talked before that a permanent move up to welterweight might eventually become inevitable. They say right now, you know, you hear from his coach, John Kraut saying, yeah, we're going to go back down to lightweight. But yeah, I could see that that. That plan might be subject to change depending on what happens here. And I think, you know, a win over Brandon Thatcher, even if only the hardcores really know how good he is, I, I still think that that would count for a whole lot for Benson Henderson to come right back in a main event bout, uh, on, on a fight night event and to go out there and beat up a, a guy from a higher weight class. Yeah, that, that would have the desired effect of getting people to kind of forget about, uh, the tough run he's been on, especially since a lot of people think he deserved to win that decision over Cerrone anyway. Like, I think that would really achieve what he wants it to. I just think that there's also a chance that if you lose, like you said, you know, we'll give him a little bit of, uh, of leeway on it because he's going up at weight class and on somewhat short notice to do it. But at the same time, I don't know how much that helps you if you go and you get knocked out. Um, you still got knocked out. I mean, right. you, and you only got so many of those in you, uh, before it starts to take a toll. So, uh, this is not without some risk. Right. And this kind of leads us into this question from Ross Fenimore, who writes, what happens if Brandon Thatch continues his impressive start to his UFC career and does the damn thing against ben Benson Henderson at UFN 60? Does it launch him into the mid to upper echelon of the division? Uh, See, this is another interesting question, because if you're Brandon Thatch, obviously your two previous UFC opponents are Paulo Tiago and, and Justin Edwards. Uh, and aside from that, you fought, uh, you know, uh, Chidi and Jakawani back in, in, uh, ROF 41 in 2011. I don't, don't know if you took that one in. I mean, I missed that one personally. Oh, yeah, I missed ROF 41. Uh, so, the, uh, Ben Henderson is obviously the most, uh, has the biggest, the highest profile of anyone that, that Brandon Thatch has fought, but, you know, obviously he is a lightweight moving up. Um, if Brandon Thatch comes out and beats him, maybe even does something impressive. Uh, again, I guess that this is kind of what I said about <laughs> Benson Henderson a minute ago. I'd realized that, but like, it doesn't mean nothing, but at the same time, like, yeah, beat up a, a pretty big lightweight though. Okay. Which would have been better for him to, if he could knock out, you know, the former UFC lightweight champion or if, 
uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson had not pulled out of this one if he had gone in there and beat the Wonderboy. Yeah, and see, that puts it in fairly sharp relief, right? Because obviously beating Benson Henderson is a bigger deal. Isn't yeah. it? Don't well, you think? I mean, to be able to say I beat a former UFC champion at a lower weight class, like that's the part you mumble afterwards. Uh, <laughs> then Maybe I, you just put an apostrophe or like put a, uh, an asterisk up there mm-hmm. and you have to read the real small print at the bottom of the of the boast. I like how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like how uh, you tell people that you're a best-selling author, but you don't mention that it was for uh, erotica. Yeah, you could just run it in real small letters, like on a crawl across the bottom of the screen. Yeah, while you're screaming to Joe Rogan about how you just beat a former UFC champion. Yeah, results not typical. <laughs> By the way, I really enjoy your erotica. I don't know why oh, I feel embarrassed about thank it. Thank you. You know what I like about it is how erotic it is. Yeah, super very, erotic. Very erotic. Yeah. One of the best aspects of my erotica is its eroticism. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on to another question here. Uh, how about this one? This one is just going to be. Maybe the, the best email we received this week from Cameron Chapman. Let's assume Weidman gets hit with the same karma stick as Dominic Cruz and will hurt his other ribs while rehabbing his ribs. How awesome would a middleweight tournament be right now? I'm talking the dragon, the young dinosaur, Shakare, the soldier of God, sweet and saucy. I believe he means sweet and sassy. Uh, sure. But hey, sweet and saucy, why not? <laughs> millionaire bachelor Luke Rockhold and whatever awesome Tim Kennedy nickname we come up with before then. Ray Longo and Matt Sarah call the fight ignoring all the action and just describing how quote Weidman Weidman will fucking destroy these guys and whose mom makes the best meatballs winner of the tournament fights Weidman on an aircraft carrier on the Hudson River July 4th weekend Anderson who am I right who says no yeah uh, and we talked about this I think last week or two weeks ago just about if you're gonna if ever there was a time that the middleweight division could sustain a, a stretch without its champion and now a stretch without Anderson Silva a longer stretch than the one that we had even been anticipating. Uh, it's right now because you do have Jacare Souza, Lyoto Machida, Vitor Belfort, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, uh, Sweet and Saucy, Musassi, uh, Tim Kennedy, Michael Bisping, if you want to. Why not? Uh, you're, you're stacking them deep at this point at the bar and, uh, everyone loves a tournament. Yeah. So I'm just Except for I'm, the UFC somehow. <laughs> well, and athletic commissions and state okay. athletic commissions. But yeah, man, I got, I'm green lighting this thing right now. If they, if they don't want to have this in the octagon, let's have it in Slope FC. We'll have it in the hill in your backyard. I think the aircraft carrier in the Hudson River sounds pretty <laughs> awesome. Uh, possible Tim Kennedy nickname, Thunder Thighs. Just think about it for a minute. Well, it's, it's like you said, very erotic. Yeah. Uh, but I like it. I think it works. There you go. Uh, Do you have anything you want to add to this talk of a middleweight I, tournament over I there? Loved, I love the wording of this question. I love its enthusiasm. I love its energy. Well done, Cameron Chapman. Well, with a question with a little bit less enthusiasm, but still uh, a valid question, Philip Hanna writes, What's the point of an event such as UFC Fight Night 60? In all seriousness, what does it do for the UFC? What does it do for the fans? What does it bring to the table for Fox Sports 1? Does it simply help to give lesser-known fighters a stage, a paycheck, and a chance to do the damn thing? I've tried. I've really tried. I can't think of a valid reason for this card to exist, and this is coming from someone who watches fucking everything with the letters UFC on it. That's not to say it doesn't have a decent fight or two, but they would be more suited to appearing on a PPV undercard. This isn't an international card, so really, who's this card for? It's also Valentine's Day, by the way, so bollocks to you, UFC. You clearly don't give a fuck if I watch this card or not, so there's something really weird about it, and there's something really weird about that. Okay, it's worth noting that this card has been subject to an awful lot of change. It has. This was not... 
This was not the original master plan drawn up on the whiteboard. No, originally it was supposed to be Matt Brown and Tarek Safadine, right? Like, not a bad main event there. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Safadine pulled out. Matt Brown goes over to fight Johnny Hendricks at UFC 185. Uh, then it's Stephen Thompson and Brandon Thatch, and Stephen Thompson pulls out. Benson Henderson steps up. Uh, so yeah, like, there's been some, some messing around going on with this one. Um, but, you know, and that's one of the things I wonder how Fox Sports, uh, how Fox in general is going to look at the UFC after being in business with them for a couple of years and realizing, like, this is not the same as some of your other sports properties. You you don't know between the time of what the UFC tells you you're going to get and when the time the thing actually airs uh, exactly what, what's going to happen to it. Like, things can change a whole hell of a lot. And that's just the nature of the business, you know, and that always will be. So that, I could see them kind of... Uh, rethinking that. As far as who this card is for coming on the Valentine's Day, I can't decide if the UFC really just knows or feels like it knows its market well enough that it says like, these people aren't going on any goddamn dates. They're going to sit home and watch these fights. Um, or if this was one where, you know, the UFC just, there's so few weekends that it doesn't have a fight that eventually, yeah, you're going to land on, on a made up romantic holiday. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think that's right, although it does still still seem like, at least for the foreseeable future, the UFC is going to be some of Fox Sports 1's more popular programming. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. It's not, it's not a, a beautiful scene over there on Fox Sports 1. I mean, this is... This is a channel that still puts Mike Francesa's like New York area area uh, sports talk radio show you on the television you for like three talk, hours a day in the afternoon. You talk about that show that so you hate it. You hate that show well, so it's much. Well, it just I mean it's just like a dead giveaway that that your national network isn't really all that national and or have all that much programming. If you're putting on a guy who like is is a nationally known sports talk show host, but like he's just talking about New York, man. Just talking about New York sports for three hours. Like you turn on <laughs> Fox Sports One in the middle of the day and Mike Francesa is on there talking about the Mets bullpen for like fifteen <laughs> minutes. And like if you're putting that on, man, you will you will almost literally put anything on. You know, and that is something I think that people miss sometimes when we talk about the relationship between Fox Sports and the USC. I mean, for one thing, I think that there are some some cracks appearing in that relationship now. But I also think that people forget that Fox Sports One, for one thing, is a, a new channel and the UFC is a thing that already brings kind of a ready made audience um that while not huge, there is that certain few hundred thousand fight fans who will follow this shit anywhere. Uh, anywhere you put it, if it's on the O network, whatever, they're, they're gonna go and seek it out and find it. And that's a big appeal for Fox Sports. And also, like you point out, we can talk about low ratings for the ultimate fighter. Uh, but then you also look at like a, a weekly rating for Fox Sports One and look at anything that's not a live sporting event. And usually the ultimate fighter has a pretty good chance of, even when the ratings are shitty, of being the highest rated thing, uh, that's not, you know, like playoff baseball or some shit like that. So, uh, that is a big appeal. As far as like getting down on this particular fight card, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like this one's all right. It's been through, so it's been knocked down a little bit. Uh, being on Valentine's Day, I'm sure we'll hurt it with some people, but, uh, I, I'm not going to get too worked up on this one. I mean, I think maybe it's just that I feel like we've seen a lot worse. We've been through a lot worse as UFC fans recently. Yeah, and I think like the saving grace of this one is that you just have to remember that this was not the original idea. They kind of had to scramble to 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 put this thing together. Uh, and but maybe that fact underlines, you know, th that I think you could make the case that if anyone's getting the short end of the Fox Sports 
UFC deal. It might be the UFC. Uh, you know, Fox is giving them a lot of money every year to do these shows, but like from a Fox sports standpoint, it's actually kind of a bargain. Don't you think like they, like they will spend more money on other stuff than they, than they spend on the UFC. And really, uh, you know, with apologies to Bellator and World Series of Fighting, it's almost like, uh, for a hundred million dollars a year or whatever it is that they pay that they get like almost vertical, a vertical like monopoly over this entire sport. Like uh, all of the MMA programming that, that the masses care about is all on the, the Fox family of networks. And it does bring home at least Fox sports one, some of their, uh, better ratings. Meanwhile, the UFC, I think that is, if I had to guess, probably still happy with the deal, but at the same time, like, I don't think any of us, including them could have really foreseen how much this Fox deal would change the sport, like change the very fabric of the sport, Ben folks, yeah. uh, from, from when they signed it a few years ago, because, you know, now you're on the hook for so much programming on so many different platforms that eventually, yeah, you do get yourself into a situation where uh, you got to throw a UFC event on Valentine's Day uh, in the middle of February, and you might have a ton of injuries, but you still got to kind of go stiff upper lip on it and still put something out there. The show must go on. Now, here's one I want to read from uh, Rob L., uh, who writes, so now that we're a week removed from the implosion of UFC 184, it seems apparent that there won't be any more bouts added or changed to help amp up the overall card. I ask for your professional opinion on if I should seek a refund for my ticket purchase or not. On the one hand, this will be my first live UFC event, and the venue is a 30-minute train ride from my house. There are a few fighters on the card that I'm interested in, and a handful of potential sleeper fights that could make the time, effort, and money spent worth it. On the other hand, I paid a pretty penny for premium seats. Oh, how about that? Uh, and worry about getting my money's worth. There are no top 10 fighters outside of the main event, and Rousey's fights typically don't last more than a round. Why can't they move up one of the amazing fights slated for UFC 185? It's only two weeks later. That's not asking too much, is it? This is Los Angeles, after all. We always seem to get screwed on live events. First of all, I don't know if you can get a refund on your money just because you feel like the card got shittier. I think uh, that's why they put the card subject to change stuff on there, is it not? So they don't have to give you your money back. Uh, if you decide you're unhappy with it. Um, as for whether UFC 184 is worth it, I've seen a lot of people complaining about the pay-per-view. As, but if you have tickets to this one, I think that uh, you should still consider it a, a pretty good evening out. I don't yeah. think that this is anything to get upset about. I mean, I, I see the point, right? Like, there's not a whole lot of firepower left on it. And especially when you were looking at it as, oh, man, what a stacked double championship fight card it was going to be. And now it's... The, the fight that seems like it's probably going to be more of a mismatch is the only one left. I can see how you'd be bumped. Um, at the same time, I don't know, man. You got tickets to uh, go see Ronda Rousey be the baddest female fighter on the planet Staples Center. I think you should throw back a few beers and go enjoy yourself. Then you could take the train home. You don't even have to worry about who's going to drive. Yeah, especially since I, didn't he note that he's, he hasn't been to a live UFC before? Did he say this is his first one? I believe so. Yeah, if you haven't been before, uh, I think we, you know, we've said it kind of time and time again on this show. My personal belief is that at the end of the day, mixed martial arts is kind of better on television than it is live. But I think that, that you come around to that idea after seeing it live as much as I have. And if you've never been, you should definitely go just to kind of soak in the environment. Um, I don't fully know what the environment at Staples Center will be like, but, uh, you know, it, the UFC puts on a good show. It's it's fun to see. I think you should, in fact, like you said, Ben, check your worries at the door. Have a couple, two, three, four soda pops. Uh, watch Ronda Rousey fight Kat Zingano, which frankly, 
I, I wouldn't complain about that. Yeah. Um, yell stand them up a few times. There's that inappropriate moment. Stop hugging. Yeah. Yell quit hugging. Uh, and you know what? There's going to be some potentially fun stuff on this card, Ben. You got Derek Lewis, the black beast fighting Ruan Potts down on the, on the prelim card. Uh, so you know something bad is going to happen in that fight. Uh, you, you got El Kakui, Tony Ferguson fighting the, 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 whatever the opposite of a human highlight reel is and Gleason Tebow. Uh, yeah, that that might be the time to get up and uh, go get some more soda pops. Jake Ellenberger and Josh Koscheck, something fun could happen there. And then you get to watch Holly Holm probably call out Ronda Rousey after she whips up on Raquel Pennington. That should be a good time. I will say this to Rob L. Um, you know, when you do take the train down there, don't be one of these assholes that shows up midway through the prelims. Get there early, man. Get there early so that when the Staples Center is still mostly empty for the first couple prelim bouts, as you know it's going to be because, you know, Los Angeles is going to be a late arriving crowd in all probability. But you're going to be there, Rob L. You're going to be amped up on soda pops and yelling your goddamn head off. You make a good point. That's a solid opportunity to get your voice on television. Yeah, that's see, a man can make himself heard during the prelims. That's what I appreciate about it. So I expect that when I am sitting at home uh, on the day of UFC 184 and I'm watching James Krause versus Valmir Lorazzo on the UFC Fight Pass, I expect to hear Rob L's voice rising uh, through the empty cavernous arena shouting about how he came because the CME told him to, if you nasty. <laughs> uh, let's spend a couple minutes, Ben, talking about Bellator before we wrap up. Uh, Bellator moving on with their monthly fight card uh, plan. I don't know that it's quite hit its stride the way that I had hoped it might when uh, we found out that it was moving away from weekly uh, shows and going to these uh, monthly events. Uh, but, you know, you look at Melvin Manhoff against Alexander Shlomenko in the main event of, of this Bellator 133 event on Friday night, uh, also at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California, by nice. the way, in case Rob L. wanted to drive up, spend the day. Classic yeah. venue, the Save Mart. Uh, Melvin Manoff against Alexander Shlomenko. I'll set my DVR for that one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like uh, there's n- there's never going to be a time where you tell me, like, hey, Melvin Manhoff is on TV right now on, like, a Friday afternoon, and I'm going to be like, no, nah, I'm not that interested. Like, of course, I'm going to I'm gonna look over there and see what terrible things Melvin Manhoff is going to do or have done to him. This one, though, it just seems like uh, – are, are we are we worried about some people's brains up in here uh, with Melvin Manhoff? Uh, you know, he got knocked out kind of recently. And, man, he's one of those guys where as dangerous as he can be, you know, when he is on offense, he also will leave himself wide open for, for counters. And when he gets knocked out, it's bad. You know, it's kind of like when Stefan Struve gets knocked out. Like, those, there are some guys who are just like, they never just get kind of knocked out a little bit. They just get complete power shut down. Yeah, and Shlomenko, we really got a good look at his ground skills uh, in that fight against Tito Ortiz. Um, so I think that you have a a uh, uh, oh he got choked out again too. Yes, he by did by Brandon Halsey. Yeah, I didn't even know it's that. It's been it's been a rough time, hard times for Shlomenko. <laughs> so he's gonna come out hungry and and f- probably full of spinning shit. Melvin Manoff is gonna try to knock his face into the front row. I don't think that you're gonna see this one turn into a technical jujitsu battle. Um, but even if you have to take your significant other out on Friday night because you've already cleared it with him or her that you're staying home or going to the Staples Center on Saturday night to watch the UFC. 
This one seems worth it to me. It this does. particular fight. Yeah, at least that one. Definitely worth setting the DVR. What what are your your Valentine's Day plans again, by the way? Uh I would assume I will do something with my wife. Take her out for a lovely meal, perhaps. No, you won't. Come yeah, on. I probably will. Yeah, I, I can tell you're, you've already put a lot of thought into I it. I still clearly. have uh, romance in my relationship, unlike is some that what, people up living on the hill. Is that what fuels your erotica? Yes. <laughs> the, the romance in your uh-huh. relationship? I have one of those I love my wife bumper stickers yeah. on my car. Uh, here's one. Somebody, There's a pile of Valentine's presents for my wife in that office, by sure the way. Sure, sure. What'd you get your wife for Valentine's Day? It's confidential. Nothing. Probably didn't get her a damn thing. Uh, somebody uh, from, from James Dean who read my uh, story about uh, the sale of MMA signatures. Nobody read that. Nobody read that. Uh, he writes, Ben's signature article got me thinking, do you guys have signatures or fight memorabilia that you hold dear to your heart? Is there some fighter out there whose signature you would cherish? Now, I would say absolutely not with signatures. I still, I, even after talking to a lot of the autograph people, I get it more now what, what the appeal of that hobby is, but I just autographs in general. I've never been really a thing that, that does anything for me. But how about just, Chad, as far as MMA memorabilia? Do you have any MMA memorabilia that you hold on to? No, I mean, I have a lot of swag in the office, yeah. but we try to send that to people whenever we get get the opportunity. Um, when I was a kid, I had the autograph of Randy the Macho Man Savage when I saw him in the Dayton, Ohio airport, uh, <laughs> and I got him to sign a piece of notebook paper. Uh, for wow, me. that's what uh, you got him to sign. Huh? But well, it's not like I was traveling around the the friendly skies of America with my Randy Savage uh, poster. Or uh, you, you're telling me you were you were on a flight and you didn't even have the WWF magazine to read? No, I actually sat right across the aisle from Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the South, and then uh, I saw Macho Man in the airport. I got him to sign that for me, and I have no idea where it is. I lost it. That's so a damn shame. that should answer your question. No, I apparently do not hold this dear because i would really like to have that randy macho man savage autograph today framed on my wall in my office but i didn't even care enough about it to keep track of it and that's why i can't have nice things did he write any kind of like personalization or just scribble his name for you i think he personalized it to me okay but that's no he was going to fight rick flair at some kind of wcw event uh so he, so had, he had other on. he had other <laughs> things on his mind, <laughs> yeah. in case you were wondering. Well, that was one of the things I, I heard from a lot of people was the personalizations was a big thing that a lot of the fighters had been told uh, in order to make it so that people couldn't sell their signature to go ahead and force personalizations onto everything. Um, but then also I heard from other people that there are methods that you can do to remove those personalizations. Yeah. Scissors. <laughs> There's one method. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, that hadn't totally solved the problem. Uh, you know, the, the weirdest thing I learned, uh, while doing this is, oh, do tell. Uh, not only about, I talked in the article about the posters that the fighters all have to sign, which the UFC sells kind of for a lot of money. Some of those will go for four or five hundred dollars at the event and they sell like a hundred of them. Um, but also you'll go on the UFC online store and there's a little be pictures, fighters, uh, that are autographed that the UFC is selling and trying to find out exactly how those fall. The, the merchandise agreement says that fighters get 10% of officially licensed stuff, but I didn't know if that counts and asking a lot of fighters and managers, Hey, do you get a cut of this stuff? How about this other stuff? What's your cut? It was amazing to me how many managers replied, I don't know. Um, and also replied in a tone that suggested they weren't terribly concerned with finding out, which if you were my manager and you didn't know whether I was entitled to some of this money and you weren't going to go and find out if I was entitled to some of this money, I might look for a new manager because that's kind of your job. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me that much that maybe we're moving a lot of merchandise and guys aren't getting paid for it. But uh, 
from reading your your story about autograph hounds, the one thing that I took away from it is that there are some guys who are really living hashtag lifestyle that uh, <laughs> maybe we don't consider on a day-to-day basis. But there are some people with some MMA hashtag lifestyles out there. And some of them involve hoarding merchandise. Yeah. Signed some of them memorabilia. Have a whole lot of stuff. Here's let's see if you can guess this, Chad. The the thing that I heard over and over again was that there were three guys, and I'm talking like not necessarily still active now, but not like old school guys or pride guys or anything. Um, but three fighters who were known to be the notoriously difficult guys to get autographed stuff from, and they were the ones that even the guys who say, I don't buy stuff, I only get what I can get in person had broken down and said, okay, I will buy that guy's stuff. Three guys, tough to get. Who do you think they are? Uh, I bet George St. Pierre There's is pretty one. high on the list. George St. Pierre is he, one. He keeps the personal image pretty close to the vest. He is notoriously he's, difficult. He's, he's hard to get to. And does not enjoy doing it, from what everybody says. Uh, boy, I don't know. Who are the other two? Just tell me. Nick Diaz. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because it's too scary to ask. <laughs> well, uh, and... Well, and Nick Diaz is just not going to show up to any of the shit he's supposed right. to be at. Uh, finally, the third one, Brock Lesnar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those just actually, never even get to see him. Those make good sense. You got to yeah. go to Alexandria, Minnesota and wait outside the stop and go. Uh, uh, you know what? I guess that we're probably running out of time here, though. So, um, next week we will probably do a co-main event podcast to break down the stuff that happens in this Valentine's Day weekend chock full of MMA. Yeah, everybody's going to so- want to hear about this. Great Valentine's Day plans you had with your wife, just and we're gonna we're gonna fact check it with your wife to make sure that you guys actually did something. I do not kiss and tell. You'll have to read my erotica to find out what happens. Yeah, well, your your erotica all about Thad Mundus. <laughs> As <laughs> for right now, Hotsmith though, we, we are <laughs> done. We are through. We are out. Did you just use the phrase "notorious cocksmith" on the Coming Event podcast? Thad wiped the sweat from his brow. Looked upon the. This is why we, see, this is why we have to have the explicit rating over here. <laughs>